Amen. I'm glad to be here tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Praise the Lord. That sickness has been going around and stuff. It's good to get it out of the house now, and it's gone through, and we're done with it. I'm glad for that. Um, I, I know a lot of you have been through that, but praise the Lord, we're feeling better. Good to see you, many of you back tonight. Some of you are out of town, some were sick, and I'm glad you're here. We're in uh, Acts chapter 2, and um, tonight we're going to continue on. We're, we're doing a, a series. We've been looking at the book of Acts, looking at the history of the beginning of the church. Um, and the, the title of our series has been The Church Ablaze, and seeing how, how God really worked in a great and powerful way, how he sent the Holy Spirit, um, empowered the um, disciples that were there in the upper room, and how the, the very first evidence that we see of the power of the Holy Spirit of God being evidenced in the preaching of the Word of God through the Apostle Peter. And um, we began looking at this about two studies ago, which is about three weeks ago. Last week I was not here, and uh, so we're going to, I just want to go back and kind of review what we looked at the first two weeks in this particular part of our study. And um, if you, you remember, this is uh, Peter preaching his first message. What an amazing message it was, and I believe perhaps the most powerful message. It's hard to quantify stuff like that, but when you see the results of what happened, and you see exactly what took place when he preached this message, you would have to say, Peter would probably be looking back in his life and say, you know what, that was a great service. What a, can you imagine being part of a service, and I, as a preacher, I'm thinking, being able to preach in a service and see 3,000 people get saved, what an amazing service that must have been. And what an amazing message that he preached. There was no doubt Peter did not do that in his own strength. Peter, if you remember, he had denied the Lord. He, uh, he had run off, gone fishing. He, a lot of things that took place in his life after the Lord was crucified. And yet now here he is, this man that w went from be, uh, being, I'll die for you, I will never reject you, Christ, to running and hiding. And now here he is with great power and authority, he preaches the word of God. And we see the results of that. And what an amazing thing it is. And by the way, the preaching of the word of God is, is so vitally important to the church. It's, it's, uh, there's some people that want to get rid of it, but it's, it's important that there is powerful preaching. The word of God is so important that we preach the word of God. It's not just something that is milk toast. It is something that is challenging to the heart. We're going to look at that more tonight and look at this message. But what an amazing day that would have been. This was powerful preaching. And, and so we began looking in, in, uh, here. And let's go ahead and just read it right here. Look at this huge crowd that's come together. And uh, Acts chapter 2, look at verse number 14. Let's read it, remind ourselves of what took place in this message. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell in, at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended in the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy fool, uh, foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ." Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful message that's recorded in your word here. Lord, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for the fulfillment of prophecy. David prophesied of your coming, speaking of you being there on the throne. Lord, we're thankful that you are truly the one that sits on the throne you are Lord, you are Christ, you're the Messiah. And Lord, I thank you for this message that was preached with the boldness and the power of your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter. I pray, Lord, that, that we would learn from it, we'd apply it to our life. Lord, I pray for that I would preach with the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, with your power in the preaching here at Lighthouse. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just review very quickly. We've read the um, majority of the message here. And and the, the first thing that we looked at, this was about three weeks ago, we noticed the manner of apostolic preaching. Now, when we talk about apostolic preaching, we're talking about preaching that is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and that's the context we're talking about. And so when we see Peter, he's preaching, like I mentioned earlier, he was not preaching in his own strength. He wasn't preaching with words that he made up in his own mind. He was obviously being led by the Holy Spirit of God. And he was preaching with great power because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit upon him. And we see that as he, as he preaches it, there are several things we noticed about it, about the manner of the preaching. First of all, it was direct, it was pointed, it was personal. Like in verse 23, he says, ye have taken. 
In verse number 36, he says, whom ye crucified. It was direct. It was personal. It was pointed. And it was, it was simple. It was plain and clear. The second thing we noticed, and it, it was so easy to understand. He used words everyone could understand. And anybody that was there that day that heard this, they didn't have to try to figure out what he was saying. It was very simple, to the point, and it was very understandable. Um, thirdly, it was biblical. Um, it was, um, excuse me, it was instructive, educational, and informative. Um, he was uh, very instructive with it. Um, and, and then uh, fourthly, it was biblical, scriptural, historical. We, we went over this the last couple of times. What we see here is quoting from Joel chapter 2 um, and, and verses 28 through 16 when he begins there at verse number 16 in our passage. And he's quoting from the book of Joel. And then he quotes a couple of different passages, a couple of different psalms that David wrote, the prophetic psalms of David of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Um, and by the way, when it talks about Jesus dipping his soul into hell, I do not believe that Jesus Christ went to the sinner's hell. That's not what that's talking about there at all. It's talking about the fact that he did not go into the grave and stay in the grave to see corruption. He was victorious over it. That's what this is saying here. So there's some people that try to make a whole doctrine after that. That's not what that's talking about. We need to understand that. But we see what Peter did. He, he rooted his message in the, God, in the, the word of God. Um, it was rooted in the, the familiar testament of the old testament the old testament scripture and um and and that's what good preaching should do it should be rooted in the word of god um, next it was bold fearless and courageous once again he says whom he crucified he was bold he didn't beat around the bush he didn't apologize for what he was saying it was right to the point it was biblical that's where the power was at that's where the truth was at it wasn't an opinion it was the word of god and it was very bold fearless and courageous no apologies given and so uh, the first thing we looked at was the manner. And then we looked at the, the last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the matter, not the manner, but the matter of apostolic preaching. Not how Peter preached, but what he preached about. And so we broke that down. And the, the first thing we notice is that he, he gives a word of explanation. Now I'm going to ask you to help me here. Word of explanation. What was the word of explanation that he had there when he so started his message? What was the word of explanation? Yes, sir. I thought you had your hand up, Jason. I'm sorry. <laughs> what was the word of explanation? What was he explaining? First thing he did, he was wanted to say, hey, this is not what's going on. You guys are saying this. Is it? Yeah, they weren't drunk. It's only the third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning. And they're not drunk, as you suppose that they were. And so he, he speaks about that. Then he goes and quotes scripture of Joel, talking about how this is like what's going to happen when the Lord does return, the day of the Lord, not talking about the, the, uh, the, the rapture here, not talking about the first um, uh, the first time Christ came. This is talking about uh, what's going to happen just before the millennial reign. And he's saying, this is what's happening here. That, um, and so he, he gives a word of explanation. Um, and, and so he, he speaks about that, first of all, explanation. Secondly, the word of exposition. Exposition. And he sets out to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Remember, these pe people, the Jewish religion, they're looking for the Messiah. All the things that they're going through and the pointing to and the looking forward to and all the prophets and what they'd said was the prophecy of the Messiah coming. And they were, they were looking, Israel was looking for the long-awaited Messiah. And so he, he comes and he puts it right to the point that the Messiah is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, he talks to them about the incarnation in verse number 22. 
He talks to them about the authentication, how that many miracles were performed and that God uh, approved of him. God was demonstrating through him, and these were a fulfillment of prophecy, and he was truly the Messiah. And then he, he talks to them about the crucifixion in verse number 23. talks about how Christ died on the cross. And then the resurrection in verse number 24. When there, look at verse 24. He says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden to it. It was not possible that Christ could stay dead in the grave. It was not possible that he could see corruption. It was not possible. And so it's a glorious divine impossibility that Jesus Christ, that he was going to raise from the dead. There was no question about that. It wasn't possible. And so death could not hold the Savior. And then he speaks on the ascension. And look at verse number 33. He says, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And so here he's talking about the, the ascension of who he is, the position that he holds. And then he concludes with glorification in verse number 36. Look at verse 36 again. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified. Both, what's, what does he say they are? Both what? Lord and Christ. He is Lord sitting on the throne and he is Christ, the Messiah, that same Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth. And so he makes a very pointed, uh, uh, very pointed to let them know who he was and glorifying him and putting him in the proper place of who he was. And so they had crucified him. God crowned him. They had entombed him. God enthroned him. They cast him out. God caught him up. They executed him. God exalted him. And so he puts it back and forth and showing that to them. That's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And so tonight, I want to pick up there where we left off. And I just want to, as we're looking at this message, can you see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost? I, want you to, we, I really want you to go there and I want you to see it. A lot of times I ask you to do that because I think it's, it's good for us to put ourselves at the place of, you know, what's going on? All the things that are happening there. Fifty days after Christ had died, there's thousands of people that are there for this, the, the time of Pentecost. And they, they're hearing it in their own language. And, and, and amazing. I would love to have been there for that, that message that day to hear it. It would have been an amazing event. I can't imagine what it would have been like. Uh, it, but, you know, when you try to think about it, it's just an amazing thing. But, and, and then you think about the effect that that preaching of the word had. When he preached the word, what effect that it had. What took place as a result of the spirit-filled preaching of the word of God. And so I want us to look at and focus in on that tonight and, and look at the miracle of apostolic preaching. The miracle that took place as a result of this spirit-filled, empowered preaching by the Apostle Peter. And we see what happened. What's, what's the thing that you see that happened? The big thing that jumps out. What's the big thing that happened? Help me out. Anybody, raise your hand. What happened? People fell asleep in the message. No, that's not what happened. Okay, they were, but let's, the big thing, just the, the title of the whole thing. What happened, Catherine? Okay, we're, we're going to get to those points. Revival took place. 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people got saved. How did they get saved? How did they get saved? I can tell you, first of all, by the Spirit of God. And I'm hitting this again because this is something we need to remember about how people get saved. People don't get saved by works. People don't get saved by getting dipped in water. 
People get saved, and there's a way that we see in the Word of God of how people get saved. And if you are saved in your life, you, this is exactly how you get saved. First of all, by the Spirit of God. Look at verse number 33. Look what it says there. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received by the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye which now see and hear. The promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. The Holy Spirit was given. The power of the Holy Spirit is evidence here. We see that now he is shedding forth this truth to them. He is speaking to their hearts. You know, it reminds me of, of talking about the Spirit being involved in our salvation of what Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. If you remember in verse number 5, when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now somebody tell me what that, that, that letter uh, on spirit is a, a capital letter. What is it talking about? It's not talking about your spirit. not talking about some spiritual thing in this world. It's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The, the, the third person of the Holy Trinity is talking about the Spirit being born again, having the Holy Spirit of God coming and speaking to your heart. And we're going to get into the, the, the specifics of that in a minute. But they were saved, first of all, by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they were saved through the Word of God. The instrument that the Holy Spirit uses when somebody gets saved is the Word of God. We'll use the Word of God. I need somebody to look up 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 and stand and read that. First person there, go ahead and... If you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and get them out. But go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 23. First person there, go ahead. Brother Randy, if you'll read that for us. Amen. It's a seed that is not corruptible. It's by the Word of God. That's why when we talk about planting seeds... When we, you know, we're talking about we're planting the word of God in people's hearts. It's not a corruptible. It is the word of God. And the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, speaks to people's heart. These people were saved as a result of that. And then there's a third part of their salvation. Thirdly is that they repented and exercised faith in the Savior. There was a decision that they had to make. All right. They had the Holy Spirit of God speaking to them and the word of God worked through the power of the Holy Spirit of God speaking to them, and then they had to make a decision. They repented and exercised faith in the Savior. Back to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse number 38. Notice what it says. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so now I want to break it down. I want us to kind of look at this. We see how a person is saved. But I want to break it down a little bit further now. And I want us to notice that, first of all, when the Holy Spirit of God begins to work and the Word of God is being preached, we start with seeing something in the person's heart that leads to salvation. And the first thing is this, that there was conviction. There was conviction. And some of you named that earlier. There was conviction. Man, they had a conviction in their heart. Look at verse 37. Notice what it says back one verse there. Look at it. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their heart. That, that's an interesting word there. That word there, pricked, it's a rare one. It means to pierce. It means to sting sharply. It means to stun. It means to smite. They were pricked in their heart. 
And the hearts of the people had been smitten sharply by the preaching of the Word. And this brought the question, what shall we do? Here the preaching of the Word goes forth. The Holy Spirit of God is working. It brings conviction in their heart. And they ask the question, what shall we do? See, they had a deep sense of their own guilt. They just heard that they had crucified Christ. By the way, every one of us, we're, we're included in that. Every one of us. We were part of why Christ was crucified. And when I came to know Christ as my Savior, I I had a deep sense within my heart of knowing my own guilt. That's where it starts. That's where the conviction comes in, that I'm a sinner, that I, I, I broke God's law. And because of my sin, Jesus died in my place. And these people, they had a deep sense of their own guilt. Not only did they have a deep sense of their own guilt, but they also had a deep fear of God's wrath. It goes hand in hand. A deep fear of God's wrath. Knowing that God is a holy, thrice God. That God is righteous. God is a righteous judge. And God has said what the, what the, the payment or the penalty of sin is. And it is death. And that we are all sinners. And we all fall short of God's glory. And for me, that was a Sunday night. Maybe you can go back to the day or the night that you got saved. And you remember that there was conviction. There ought to be conviction when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior. There ought to be or something's wrong. If there's no conviction, there's something wrong. That's why we have to be very careful we're leading a child to Christ that they understand that they're a sinner. Because they have to come to the place of being convicted of that sin because they know that they've broken God's law. They have broken God's commandments and they understand that. And so <clears throat> there's conviction. And there has to be conviction if there's going to be a genuine conver- conversion. If there's no conviction, you have to ask the question, was there ever a conversion? They go hand in hand. Because what brings conviction? An admittance to the fact that you are a sinner. An understanding that you've broken God's law. And an agreement with what God has said the penalty of that sin is. And if we don't have that, then something's missing. For a child, it might be because they don't understand. For an adult, it might be just simply saying some prayer to get some ticket out of hell free. With no conviction. Something's wrong if there's no conviction. We ought to have conviction. And you know something? There, there are so many modern, modern um, churches today, modern preaching today. By the word modern doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad thing. Being modern doesn't mean bad. I'm talking about there's a lot of modern churches today, though, that have stepped over to the fact of where they don't want people to feel bad and never convicted. And, I, and this is not just something I'm saying. It's something that I've heard and seen. Where preachers will say, I, I heard this one preacher, he, um, the, what's the name of the church over in Australia that has a lot of the singing that goes on? What's that called? Yeah, Hillsong. Hillsong, the preacher of that church that actually puts out all that stuff, was asked the question, do you ever preach against homosexuality? I heard this with my own ears. No, I, I don't preach about things like that because people are already guilty and they know it. I don't need to say it. I don't need to make them feel bad. What? You don't, th- th- listen, people are, know they're sinners too, and we have to tell them they're sinners. They, there has to be a, an understanding in preaching of the Word of God. Now, I'm not just picking on homosexuality, I'm using that as an illustration. But if you imagine, it, the Word of God to me is really plain and clear about the sin of homosexuality. It really is. I don't have any doubt in my mind about it. And if you're, if you're afraid to say that because you're going to offend somebody, what are you preaching about? Where is there any conviction at all in your preaching? See, the idea today is to make people feel good. You don't want them to feel bad. You want them to come and feel good and go away feeling exactly the same way. 
I alluded to it a little bit on Sunday when I said people are looking for places where there's preaching that feeds the flesh, doesn't challenge them spiritually. And, and so there's a, there's this, the, the, the idea is, and they actually proudly say it, they advertise that we are make-you-feel-good type of church. That's not what's going on here in the first church service, at the very beginning of the church where the Apostle Peter is preaching. He's not making them feel good, okay? There's conviction that comes in their heart because they know they have sinned against God. They have crucified. Now, the people he's preaching to, were they the ones that actually nailed him to the cross? Not necessarily. There might have been some that were there. We do see that there were many that got saved that perhaps were part of that. No question. It's possible. But most of them that were there, that wasn't the case as far as physically. But like I said earlier, they knew, just like we know, they were guilty. And they felt the conviction. There was real conviction. Peter's sermon cut right to the heart. And so there was, there was conviction. Secondly, we see there was conversion. Conversion. Peter said there in verse number 38, and in, uh, he said, repent, repent. Verse number 38, and then in verse number 41, we read that they gladly received his word. Repent started in verse number 38, and then they gladly received his word. There was a, a transaction that took place there. They repented. By the way, that word repent, we've talked about it before, but I need to make sure we understand what it's talking about. It speaks of a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. Repenting, turning away from, trying to do it our own way, trying to, to earn our own salvation, trying to, to have our own self-righteousness, or turning away from the sin of absolute unbelief and turning toward God to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of our will. Barnes is a commentary. Uh, he, writes, he wrote commentaries. Um, most of it's good that I agree with, but this is something that he said. And I think this is a, a challenging statement. He said, false repentance dreads the consequence of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. Interesting. False repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. Is that not, is that not what conversion is? I mean, if, we're, if there's going to be a conversion that's going on, there's a transaction that took place, there's a changing. If any man be in Christ as a new creature, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. There's something that changes in our way of thinking. Something that changes within our heart. There's repentance and understanding of it. And then there's a, and, and, uh, and turning away from it and not desiring that. Now, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, is what John said in 1 John chapter 1. So we do continue to fight this battle with sin, but it's different than what it was before. It, see, here's the thing. There's a, there's, I, I fear that there are a lot of people, they'll be convicted of sin, and a lot of people will hear the consequence of sin. And they will say some prayer to avoid hell and separation from God eternally. But never do they have any change of heart. They've said some magical words. And yet there's never been a conversion. There's never been true repentance. There's never been a turning away from. There's never been a, a, a turning away and wanting to, to, to follow God and obey God and, and desiring to do right. And when they do sin, they, they feel the conviction and then they re repent and ask God for forgiveness. Not for salvation, by the way, because if they've truly been saved to begin with, when they ask for forgiveness at this point, it's just to, re to, to, to have the proper relationship with God. And God forgives them of it. 
But we need to be very careful. And this is the word repent is something that I will tell you as a pastor, I've struggled with that word earlier in my ministry. And here's the reason why. Because when you repent, do you repent of all sin? Think about that for a moment. Yes and no. Yes and no. No, you see, because if I repented of all sin, I, and I never sinned again, it's not possible. True repentance for salvation is repenting of unbelief and trusting and believing in God. But along comes with that is then there is a repentance of turning away from sin, desiring to live right. And there should be evidence of that in our life. That is scriptural. We see that again and again in the Word of God. There should be a change. There should be, when we sin, there should be a sorrow for that. Godly sorrow for the sin and the cost. Not just, well, I guess I'll just have to say the prayer and then I can move on. That's just like the Catholics going to, I mean, going to Mass and going to the priest and going to confessional so they can get absolution to go do it all over again. It shouldn't be that way for a child of God. Because we love Him and we realize the cost. We have a heavy heart when we sin. And we come before God with a contrite heart before Him and ask for forgiveness because we know the price. We ought to be convicted. And I know I'm getting away from as far as what happened here as far as salvation, but I truly believe there are a lot of people today that say they're saved and they're not. There's never been a conversion. There's never been repentance. There's never been a true turning away from. They say they believe in God, and yet their life doesn't show it. That being said, that doesn't mean that I believe in lordship salvation either. There's a delicate balance. Lordship salvation, um, in a nutshell, means that if you don't make him lord of your life completely, then you're not saved. Now, I believe we should make him lord of our life, and I believe there are people that are going to be saved, yet so as by fire, as the Apostle Paul spoke about. And there's going to be people that are in heaven that truly did repent but never lived for Christ. There's no question. I believe that. But I also believe there's going to be a lot that are going to say, but I prophesied in your name and did many wonderful works in your name. And you're going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Ye that work iniquity. By the way, do you work iniquity? <laughs> See the question? Every one of us do. It ought to be something we want to do, but when we do it, we ought to ask for forgiveness. When he says, ye that work iniquity, even doing the things that you say you're doing and prophesying and doing many miracles in his name, you're still doing it in the flesh and you're dead and you're not saved. You are living in your own iniquity, your own sin and trespasses. And the only difference that makes between us and a person that's saved and a person that's not is that we are living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God sees that. But the question, the challenge is when... Is there been a conviction in your life? Has there been a conversion in your life? Was there a time when you repented and turned to God and asked for forgiveness? Not just dreading the result of, but understanding what sin cost. And so there was a conviction, there was conversion. Then thirdly, there was confession. Look at verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, here's a question. <laughs> if you've known anybody with the Church of Christ and you've ever talked to them, they're going to use this verse. Amen. Yep, this is their favorite verse to go to. And you're going to get hit with it. If you, if you haven't yet, you ever talked to them, you will. They might even go on TV and put your picture up and say things like this. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give you the time of day. But, but they'll use this verse. Now, does this mean that we're baptized in order to have our sins forgiven? Is that what this verse is saying? No, of course not. It means we're baptized because our sins are remitted, because our sins are forgiven. Now, th this is one of those things. You have to look at a verse, and you have to not take it out of context, and you have to look at the preponderance of Scripture. And if, there's only, if you have one verse that seems to be contrary to the preponderance of Scripture, you've got to stop and say, okay, then what's wrong here? Does God lie? No. Does God change? No. So then why does this verse seem to indicate that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, yet we don't see that throughout the Word of God? We don't see it over and over again. You don't see the fact that people are baptized in order to receive salvation. We don't see that at all. And so what's wrong? There's something. What are we reading wrong here? What's happening here? Now, we have to understand a couple of things. First of all, when you make translations from one language to another, sometimes you can have variances in understanding, number one. Number two, sometimes when you have a, a, a verse of Scripture, and if you're not looking at it properly, you can misunderstand what it's saying um, based on your understanding of the English language even. <laughs> and so it, it, it's important that we, first of all, understand your own language. That's a good thing. And second of all, if you still have questions, use strong concordance and go back and look at a word. Look at the Greek word. Try to understand it, what it's saying. And it's interesting here. If you look at the Greek preposition, that word there, for, for the remission of sins. You see it right there in your Bible? For, F-O-R. That word there, for, it is the Greek word, ice, and it, it's, it, it could be translated as because of. Not just for, but because of. And so you, you could say, by looking at this, you, you could say be baptized because your sins are forgiven. That's what this is saying. Now, if the preponderance of Scripture said otherwise, I would be twisting to try to find that. that. I don't see that at all myself. But when I look at this, this is saying get baptized because you have been saved. Is what it's talking about. Not for your salvation. Let me ask you a question. Did the thief on the cross go to paradise with Jesus Christ? The day he died, the one that believed. Was he ever baptized? Yeah. So how do you answer that? It's interesting. You, you can't. There's, there's, uh, again and again and again, we see that. Uh, people, um, if, it was a, if we knew for a fact that you had to be baptized, God would make it so plainly clear throughout the rest of Scripture. And yet we don't see that. If you don't know what I'm saying is true, dig into the Word of God and find out. And I'm saying it that way because I could show you, but if you don't know it, it's because you're not studying the Word of God. If you just simply read the epistles and you read, you're going to find out. that. It, it, listen, hmm. for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say anything about baptism. So why doesn't it? Did the, the, the church at Rome, those believers there at Rome die and go to hell because poor St. Paul didn't agree with St. Peter and tell them they had to be baptized? You all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm quoting from Romans. Paul wrote that to the church at Rome. And he didn't say about getting baptized, so what's wrong here? What's wrong is people are misquoting this, this, this verse of Scripture. And I'm taking the time to really mention this because there is a strong presence even in our community, the Church of Christ. And they are using this to try to trip people up. What they're going to tell you is, they'll show you this, and they'll say, see, your church is sending you to hell. They've actually said that. They have physically said those words, that this preacher is sending you to hell. And what I'm telling you is, this preacher is trying to keep you from putting yourself under the bondage of the law once again. 
as it says in Galatians, who hath bewitched you? I don't want you to get bewitched and tricked. All right? Some Judaizer comes along, and that's nothing more than what this is talking about, getting back under the law and living under the law and going back to uh, covenant theology and having to go and under the law and through works and, and trying to somehow twist that. No, listen, a person is saved by trusting in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Believer's baptism then happens as an outward expression of an inward experience. It's what is generally going to happen afterwards as a result of what God has done in your life. It's letting everybody know that. Baptism is like, I've used this illustration a lot, it's like wearing a wedding ring. Now, i got to let you in on a secret. Maybe you guys have noticed and you've thought, wondered about it. Where's yours at, Randy? I never had one, Dave. You never had one? Well, that's okay. Well, I did, and I don't. Exactly, that's the point. Years ago, I was getting stuff at the church. We were doing some work. went to the sand thing. Uh, it was a big combine thing. And you had to open up this big chute to let the sand fill up the back of this pickup truck. Oh, brother, what a job that was. Opened that thing up, and it slammed right down on my hand. It smashed my wedding ring into a pancake right on my hand. And it broke it. And I, Well, actually, I say it broke it. It smashed it. It was stuck that way. I had to use pliers, two pairs of pliers to get it off. And it was terrible. And that hurt. That, went, that ring, I think it saved my finger. Now, I'll tell you, that ring, ring means a lot to me. It's a beautiful thing. I love it, but it's smashed. And in the top, I got it repaired one time, and then it got broken again, and it's, it's become so thin, I've got to get the thing majorly repaired, all right? That's why I don't wear it, because it, it's, it's falling apart. I'm going to lose it. But like Randy said, that ring does not make me married. What it does do is tell people I am married. But it doesn't make me married. That doesn't make me the husband of Charity Blount. But it lets people know that I am married. And yes, I need to get that ring fixed. But you being baptized doesn't make you a child of God. It just lets people know that you are a child of God. It's an outward showing of what's happened inside the heart of demonstrating the fact that you are and that you belong to Christ. Our baptism says, I belong to Christ. Now, putting that aside, now let's think about what's going on there on the day of Pentecost. All these people were coming together that day on the day of Pentecost for what? What were they there for? What were they there for? Pentecost. Good job. Just making sure you're awake. It was a religious holiday. They were there from all over the known world for a religious reason. By the way, what religion was it? Yeah, Jewish religion. They're hearing this message. They're convicted in their heart. Holy Spirit of God speaking to them. The Word of God is preached. They hear the Word of God is being used. They, what must I do? He says, repent. They do. They believe. And then they get baptized. Imagine what that would have meant to them. Put yourself in their place. Fifty days prior, they, they, they crucified the one now they're following. And now they're going to publicly get baptized, identifying with being a follower of that rebel? And you imagine the pressure that would have been put on them. Yeah, Tony. The baptism and that connection would have been acknowledging they're unclean? You're talking about under Jewish? Yeah, in the Hebrew that would have been, but that's not what was happening here. That's not. This baptism was something that would have been an acknowledgement of, of following um, Christ. 
It was a it was believer's baptism. Um, and so th they would have identified the washing ceremony of being unclean, but th they, were, they were making an outward identification of the fact they were becoming a follower of Jesus Christ um, because they were added unto them. And that day they were added unto them. It was a public proclamation of them identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was not being, and you see specifically it's talking about being baptized in the name of Jesus, so it was an identification thing that was happening. And that's a good point, I'm glad you bring it up, but they were identifying with Christ. And so imagine, okay, so here's a family, and you have half the family goes and they get saved, they go get baptized. The other rest of the family now, they're looking at, what are we doing? There were, there were some that were there that day that were, that were priests that got saved and baptized. People that were Levites, people working in, that, were, that got saved and baptized. There were people that, they made a public decision. They did not care what it was going to cost them. We don't understand things like that in this country. We don't understand things like that. People that live in Muslim countries do. When they get saved and they get baptized, they, they're making a decision that literally might condemn them. I was talking to... Um, yeah, it was Ron Pepper earlier today, and he had a, fr a friend that, that was, came from Iraq, and um, they, they fled Iraq um, years ago because of the persecution that came on the Christians. And he said that, that, that his friend had an actual tattoo on their arm. All the Christians were tattooed and marked so that they would know who the Christians were. And the persecution, they'd killed many of them as a result. We can't even comprehend stuff like that. But in the day we're talking about here, these believers were making that decision. They were making a decision to follow after Christ that very well could cost them their life. Case in point, 50 days earlier, the one that they're following was crucified. It's just an amazing thing to think about that. To think about the fact that they are saying, I belong to Christ and I'm making a public break with Judaism. I'm identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some would say, well, how could Peter expect them to turn their back on their culture? <laughs> How could he ask them to risk becoming outcasts among their families and society? Well, you know it costs them to become followers? And it costs something to become a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It costs something. And when a person gets saved, they ought to be willing and ready to pay the price. And it says there in verse number 41, look at it once again. Look what it says. And you probably could quote it, many of you could. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them. About 3,000 souls. Added unto them. They, they identified. They, that they received. Added unto them. That, and you see what happens after that. We see the church in action. We see they were added unto the church. They were willing. They were gladly. They received it. They were baptized, even with the cost involved. You know, and the challenge comes to my heart, and it, it comes to us. What about us? Are we willing to publicly, openly, unashamedly confess our faith in Christ? Now, for some of you, it means baptism. You haven't been baptized yet. You've never come to the place of, uh, of you're, you've been saved, but you've never been baptized. Maybe because you're afraid of the water. I've had situations like that. Remember Faye Carlton. Many of you remember Faye. Some of you, not, you, you don't know her. And I, I tell you, you've been robbed. You're not known Faye. She was a great, wonderful lady. Loved her. When she first came and got saved here at Lighthouse Baptist Church, she was afraid to get baptized. She was afraid, deathly afraid of water. And I remember her saying, 
It didn't take, I mean, it wasn't like she had to wait and think about it for months and years. I remember her saying it, but she got saved. She says, but I'm going to do this because I know the Lord wants me to, and he will give me the strength to do it. And you know what? She did. And God gave her the strength to do that. I still remember that. I've known people like that. Maybe it's something for you. You're afraid of something. Listen, to follow Christ, it's going to cost something. And for you, being baptized, you need to put that fear behind you and do, be obedient to what Christ has commanded. But you know what? Beyond that, okay, we've been baptized. We got saved. We've been scripturally baptized. We now are a child of God. Are we willing to publicly, openly, unashamedly confess our faith in Christ? So often today, people are afraid to. Afraid of what, though? What are we afraid of? And I'm asking the question openly, and I'm asking it of myself as well. What are we afraid of? What is there really to fear? These people doing this could have meant their life. And for some, it did. You, all you got to do is keep reading, and you're going to see what goes on. Obviously, many of them, they died for their faith. Because they publicly made a, a, a public profession of their faith. They gave their life for it. What are we afraid of? Are we ready to tell the world that we belong to Him at work? To our neighbors, to our family? Are we willing to pay the price? If we're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost us something. We're going to suffer persecution. The Bible is very plain and clear about that. And so we see here Peter's first sermon. What a wonderful sermon it was. It was full of Christ. It's all focusing back toward Christ. All focusing back to him. Peter exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, is that not to be our purpose corporately as a church? To exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, hang on a minute. We're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission. Oh, absolutely. But that's exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all part of it. But it's not just the only thing we do. You see, because as we are lifting up his name, he will draw all men unto him. As we're lifting him up and exalting him and, and lifting him up and, and, and praising him for who he is. I'm talking about corporately right now. As a church, we ought to exalt him. He ought to be lifted up. He ought to be at the forefront of everything that we do. He ought to be exalted above everything else. Exalting him. Is that not to be our personal purpose as well? To exalt him? John the Baptist said this, He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. The reason why we won't take a public proclamation is because we increase ourselves and worried about what people think. It's pride. We're worried about our own self. The reason why we don't do what we know we're supposed to do as a child of God most often is because it's about us. Yet, he ought to increase. He ought to be exalted. He ought to be the reason why we live. He ought to be on the throne of our heart. He ought to be the purpose for which we're living. He ought to be exalted in every area of our life. And we ought to grow in our life. And he ought to be exalted more and more in our life all the time. It ought to be a building. By the way, the more that you get to know God, the more he ought to be exalted. The more you realize how great he is, how awesome he is, how loving he is, how gracious and merciful he is exalted. There's an old hymn. It's entitled, O Jesus Christ, Grow Thou in Me. The last chorus, last verse, I should say, of this hymn says this. 
Make this poor self grow less and less. Be thou my life and aim. O make me daily through thy grace more meet to bear thy name. May that truly be our desire. Let's let's all stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed as we pray tonight. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for living a life of absolute perfection that we could not live. Thank you for the victory that you won as you paid our sin debt there on Calvary's cross. You cried, it is finished. The battle cry of victory. Lord, we thank you for winning that for us, for paying our sin debt that you were buried, but you rose again. You could not be held. Death could not hold you. Lord, we lift you up. We exalt you. We thank you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and magnified in our lives. Lord, that we would not allow for ourselves to get in the way, but Lord, that you would be seen in us, that people would know and hear about our Christ, our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior. Lord, may we truly, daily, grow more able to bear thy name. We be more Christ-like, more empowered and filled by your Holy Spirit every day. Lord, that we would unashamedly share the gospel. No apology, but empowered by your Holy Spirit. With our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, I just want to